You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 84, The Continental Navy Raids the Bahamas. The Continental Congress had authorized the creation of a Continental Navy back in October of 1775, as I discussed back in episode 75. A real Navy, though, was more of a dream than a reality. Aside from the ships that Arnold had captured on Lake Champlain, and a handful of ships that General Washington had acquired and which remained under army control, the Continental Congress had no ships. Several colonies had launched their own ships, mostly to attack and capture merchant ships supplying the regulars. Many privateers were raiding British ships as well. And this was actually quite helpful in capturing supplies and denying those supplies to the British army. But none of this was really under the command of Congress and no colony or privateer had anything that could go up against a British naval fleet or even one of the larger ships of the line. This lack of ships did not seem to discourage anyone. Congress started building a navy and wanted to put it to use as soon as possible. Congressional Delegate Stephen Hopkins of Rhode Island sat on the Naval Committee. When it came time to select a fleet commander, Stephen thought his brother, Isaac Hopkins would be the best man for the job. On December 22, 1775, Congress appointed Isaac Hopkins Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Navy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think Revolutionary War Navy, I think John Paul Jones or John Barry. Isaac Hopkins is almost a non-entity in any book about the Revolution but he commanded the Navy for over two years and was the only man ever named Commander-in-Chief of the Navy during the war. Hopkins was born and raised in Rhode Island. His grandfather, Thomas Hopkins, had been one of the founding members of the Rhode Island colony. Like many Rhode Islanders at the time, Isak lived most of his life at sea. He captained a fleet of merchant ships and lived a pretty comfortable life as a merchant trader. His life got even more comfortable when he married the daughter of another wealthy Rhode Island merchant. During the French and Indian War, Hopkins captained a privateer ship, capturing numerous French and Spanish ships as prizes. The fact that Britain was not actually at war with Spain at the time did not seem to bother anyone but the Spanish. Hopkins grew even wealthier from all the prize money. During the 1760s, Hopkins was elected to several minor posts in Rhode Island, though he seemed to resign all of them after short periods, presumably because he returned to sea. His involvement in government probably came about more by the fact that his brother, Stephen Hopkins, was governor of Rhode Island for much of the 1750s and 60s. 
By the early 1770s, Isek was in his 50s and ready to spend more time at home. He served in the Colonial Assembly and clearly sided with the Patriots as the split with Britain grew. In 1772, his son was a leader in the force that sank the British ship Gaspé that I discussed way back in episode 36. Following the Battle of Lexington, Rhode Island put itself on a war footing. Hopkins, who was serving in the legislature at the time, helped with the development of colonial defenses, and in October 1775 took a position as general in the Rhode Island Army. During this time, he arranged a settlement with the captain of the British Navy ship Rose to provide the British ships with food in exchange for them not destroying the town of Newport. He also began seizing the property and estates of several prominent Tories in the colony, turning over the confiscated property to the colonial government to help pay for the war effort. Two months after becoming a general, Hopkins received Congress's request in December 1775 that he become commander-in-chief of the new Continental Navy. Now, some people refer to him as Commodore, others use the title Admiral, but whatever title you use, he was the head guy in charge of the Navy, just as Washington was in charge of the Army. Despite the fact that he had only two months' experience as an Army officer and zero experience in any Navy, Hopkins accepted and prepared to travel to Philadelphia to assume his new command. Now, the term Navy might be a bit much for what Commodore Hopkins commanded. Individual colonies did not want to give up the ships that they had outfitted to defend their own coastlines and harass British shipping. Privateers were in no hurry to join a Navy where they would have to take orders from someone else and not be allowed to keep as much prize money as they currently enjoyed. So, Congress spent much of the winter of 1775-76 purchasing merchant vessels and outfitting them as best they could to serve as combat vessels. Congress had authorized the building of more ships, but they were nowhere near ready in early 1776 when Commodore Hopkins received his first orders to set sail. His first fleet consisted of eight ships. The largest, the Columbus, with 36 guns. The next largest, the flagship Alfred, had 24 guns, followed by the 16-gun Cabot, the 14-gun Andrea Doria, and the 12-gun Providence. The three smallest ships, the 10-gun Hornet and the Wasp and the Fly with eight guns each, were named after insects, supposedly because they were so small they could only serve to be a nuisance to the enemy in battle. By comparison, a British ship of the line had to have at least 60 guns, and there were at least 130 ships of the line in the British Navy at the time. The fleet left Philadelphia in February 1776. If you've been paying attention, you may recall that British General Clinton was headed south at the same time. Clinton had a contingent of British ships that were heading from Boston to New York and then down to the Carolinas, to meet up with General Cornwallis and another fleet. The combined fleet planned to capture the Carolinas and restore Tory control of those colonies. You may also recall that Lord Dunmore in Virginia had burned Norfolk in January and remained with another British fleet controlling the Chesapeake Bay, operating out of Portsmouth, Virginia. 
Now, either of these fleets was more than a match for the eight ships and 130 Marines commanded by Hopkins. Virginia Governor Dunmore had at least six naval vessels, most of which were larger than anything the Continentals had, and also had at least 400 Marines. Clinton and Cornwallis's fleets consisted of dozens of ships and thousands of soldiers. In just about any confrontation, the best-case scenario for the Continental Navy would probably be to successfully run away and not be sunk or captured. Despite the massive fleet disparities, Congress instructed Hopkins to go forth and take out the British Navy. His first mission was to take his fleet to the Chesapeake Bay and take out the naval fleet there. After winning that fight, he should proceed immediately to the Carolinas and take out the huge fleet off the coast, which was probably about 20 times the size of his fleet. After defeating them, Hopkins was to proceed north and take out the fleet at Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island. They even authorized him to break up his fleet of eight ships and send them to different locations in order to cover more territory. While they're at it, I'm not sure why they didn't just order him to sail over to England and capture the king. These orders were so out of touch with reality that Hopkins must have shaken his head in disbelief. Now, the instructions also included a statement, quote, notwithstanding these particular orders, which it is hoped you will be able to execute, if bad wind or stormy weather or any other unforeseen accident or disaster disable you to do so, you are then to follow such courses as your best judgment shall suggest to you as most useful to the American cause and to distress the enemy by all means in your power, end quote. Now, Congress's Marine Committee wrote these orders on January 5th, so Hopkins must have had time to confer with the committee before setting sail in late February. If he thought the orders were unrealistic, you'd think he'd confer with them and get some changes to his instructions. But there does not appear to be any evidence that he did so. On February 17th, Hopkins took his fleet out of Philadelphia and out toward open seas. Departure had been delayed a few weeks because the Delaware River was still frozen and the fleet could not get out. As the ship set sail, Hopkins instructed Lieutenant John Paul Jones to hoist the new flag, a yellow flag with a rattlesnake on it, and the phrase, Don't Tread on Me. South Carolina delegate Christopher Gadsden had taken a copy of the same flag home to South Carolina. That was how the fleet and the defenders of Charleston Harbor were to recognize each other as friends if the fleet made it there. The flag is often known as the Gadsden flag. Apparently, though, Hopkins had no intention of obeying his orders. Some historians have indicated that perhaps he had secret orders or made the decision once at sea given weather conditions and the position of the enemy, but the facts really don't seem to bear out any of those theories. Before leaving port, Hopkins issued orders to each captain that if they became separated from the fleet, that they should rendezvous at a small island called Abaco in the Bahamas, which seems really out of the way, like over 700 miles out of the way for raids on the Chesapeake or the Carolinas. Within two days of reaching open sea, two of the fleet's smallest ships, the Hornet and the Fly, got separated from the fleet. Actually, it turned out they crashed into each other, 
and had to return to shore for repairs. Hopkins took the remainder of his fleet straight to Abaco, where they arrived on March 1st. There, the Marines captured some small local boats and used them to make their way inconspicuously toward Nassau on the island of New Providence. Nassau, then as now, is the capital of the Bahamas. Two forts defended the town, but no garrisons of regulars there. Defense relied on local militia. Since Nassau had been settled years earlier by many New Englanders, they were pretty sympathetic to the Patriot cause. At the sight of 200 Continental Marines invading the city on March 2nd, the Bahama militia fired off a few shots and then almost immediately fled from the smaller Fort Montague and took up defenses at the larger Fort Nassau. That evening, Hopkins issued a public letter to the people of Nassau saying that they were only there to collect stores from the forts belonging to the British government. If the people put up no resistance, he would not burn the town nor loot any private property. The locals apparently took up the deal. The next morning, when the Marines marched to the fort, the militia left and the governor turned over the keys to the fort. The Navy collected a large cache of military supplies, including 88 cannon, nearly 10,000 cannonballs, and 23 barrels of gunpowder. It was so much stuff that it took nearly two weeks to load it onto ships. Part of the delay was the fact that the sailors and marines had also captured a large cache of rum and proceeded to get drunk for several days. Even with the alcohol-induced delay, they managed to get everything loaded onto their ships. They even had to commandeer another local ship to carry all the stuff home. And true to his promise not to take any private property, Hopkins later returned the ship to its owners and paid them for its use. Unfortunately for the Patriots, they missed out on what they needed most. The governor had removed 150 barrels of gunpowder from Fort Nassau before the Continental Marines entered. He secreted the barrels onto a civilian sloop, which sailed away with the valuable cargo. The Continental Navy took the governor and a few top leaders as prisoners of war and brought them back to North America. While they were still loading supplies, the Fly, one of the two ships that had gotten lost as they left Philadelphia, finally arrived. The captain reported that it had been able to catch up after making minor repairs. The other ship, the Hornet, had suffered greater damage and remained in port in South Carolina. On March 18th, the seven ships of the fleet, along with the borrowed merchant vessel, set sail for Providence, Rhode Island. There, they hoped to offload the military supplies so that they could travel by wagon to General Washington in Cambridge. They did not know it, but by the time they left the Bahamas, Washington had already broken the siege and the British had evacuated Boston. During the Navy's return trip, on April 4th, as the fleet passed the coast of Long Island, New York, they encountered a British Navy ship, the Hawk, a small six-gun tender ship which surrendered easily. The next day, they encountered another ship, the Bolton, with eight guns, and captured it as well. The day after that, they sighted an even larger ship, the 20-gun Glasgow, along with a smaller tender ship. The ships opened fire on each other, leading to a battle that lasted several hours. The captain of the Glasgow, realizing he was outnumbered and outgunned, eventually made a run for it and escaped capture, 
leaving only the smaller tender ship as a prize. The Patriots took several casualties. Captain Hopkins of the Cabot, Commodore Hopkins' son, was seriously wounded along with seven others on his ship. Four men on the Cabot died in battle. The Cabot, which had been the first ship in the assault, took the brunt of the casualties. Overall, the fleet suffered 10 killed and 14 wounded, with only one killed and three wounded on the Glasgow. After this engagement, the fleet continued on to Rhode Island, where they offloaded the captured goods, and Commodore Hopkins had the chance to send a report to Congress. Initially, Hopkins received congratulations for his successful mission and enjoyed celebrations for the raid on the Bahamas. But within days, the praise began to turn to criticism. Why hadn't the fleet been able to capture the Glasgow? It was a single 20-gun ship going up against seven vessels. In all fairness, the Glasgow was a fast, new, well-designed ship of war. It was not a converted merchant vessel. It also had a highly experienced crew going up against a Patriot fleet that had never fought a sea battle before. Just based on lack of experience, I have to give the Patriots a break on letting this one escape. Others were not as forgiving, though. Two captains, Whipple of the Columbus and Hazard of the Providence, were accused of being insufficiently aggressive during the fighting, leading to the courts-martial of both men. Amazingly, Whipple sat on the court panel that court-martialed Hazard, and Hazard sat on the panel that court-martialed Whipple. The courts acquitted Whipple, but relieved Hazard of his command, leading to the promotion of now-captain John Paul Jones. Next, Hopkins had to deal with his sailors. Typically, upon returning from a mission, a crew would be paid. But, as usual, Congress was short on cash and making excuses. Over 200 crewmen had to leave for medical care. Smallpox, among other things, were ravaging the crew. Hopkins could not recruit a new crew, as any able sailor was making far more money aboard a privateer, plus he had a better chance of actually getting paid what he was promised. So Hopkins could not set sail again, as he could not recruit sailors for the fleet. By May, Hopkins learned that many in Congress were upset by the fact that he refused to follow orders and had not bothered to do anything about the British fleets in the Chesapeake and off the Carolina coast. Southern delegates were already predisposed not to like a New England commander. Ignoring the military needs of the southern states in order to bring back a bunch of arms to New England and disregarding orders in the process did not endear him to the Southerners. Congress wanted Hopkins to set sail again to attack the British in the Chesapeake and also raid Halifax. But, as I said, Hopkins was unable to raise a crew for his fleet and he could not comply with the orders. But the Continental Congress did not want excuses, it wanted results. They soon called Hopkins back to Philadelphia for hearings related to Hopkins' refusal to follow orders when he raided the Bahamas, and his failure to capture the Glasgow, despite having a much larger fleet. Many hoped that the hearings would end in Hopkins being dismissed. However, his supporters among the New England delegations prevented dismissal. Congress did censure him, though, before returning him to command of the fleet, now based in Rhode Island. I can't imagine the censor did much for his morale, 
and it certainly left a mark on his reputation that weakened his command authority. Hopkins would remain in command of the Navy until 1778, and I'll discuss the reasons he left in a later episode. But following his initial raid on the Bahamas, Hopkins accomplished very little. He could never recruit enough sailors to man all of his ships. He also could not get the undivided support of Congress. And now the British Navy focused on keeping his ships locked up in Narragansett Bay. There would be no more major naval actions over the next few years. Individual vessels would still harass the British, but they were really doing nothing more than what the privateers were already doing. For those of you hoping for lots more stories of naval exploits, sorry, there's going to be a few more small encounters, but for any major actions, you're going to have to wait for the next war. Next week, we're heading north again, where General Washington finally breaks the deadlock in the Siege of Boston. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get into today's book, I want to say thanks to Deborah Wallison and Noah Horowitz for supporting the podcast on Patreon at the Miniman level, and a big thanks to Dave Salvatore for supporting us at the Privy Council level. Your support helps put this podcast on a sustaining path. I know I've been talking about Patreon a lot lately, but I'm still figuring it all out myself, and I wanted to explain a little more about what I've been doing. I've created several tiers of support for anyone interested. For $2 a month, you can join at the Sons of Liberty tier. In thanks for your support, you will get access to a complete list of MP3s for all past podcasts, plus sometimes access to a new podcast before it publishes, and everything, of course, commercial-free. For $4 a month, you can join the Minuteman tier, where in addition to Tier 1 benefits, you get to see a copy of my roadmap for future episodes, as well as some draft copies of upcoming episodes. For $10, you get to become a standard bearer. In addition to the other benefits, I will send you an American Revolution flag magnet each month with a short description about the flag. 
These are small refrigerator magnets, each one with a reproduction of a Revolutionary War era flag or other important symbol. Finally, for $20 a month, you can join the Privy Council. There, you get all the other benefits, plus the ability to connect directly with me. I will try to answer any American history questions you have and provide exclusive insights into the direction of the podcast. You'll also be sure to get a shout out on my podcast, like Dave Salvatore did for being our first member at this level. I really appreciate everyone who has supported the podcast in any way you have. This is such a special project to me, and I'm so glad that others are finding it informative and entertaining. Okay, so today's episode dealt with the first mission of the Continental Navy. What struck me most was Congress's completely unrealistic expectations with a few small ships going up against the entire British Navy. Even if the colonists could build ships of war as large and powerful as the British, which they could not, British naval experience and the sheer numbers of ships made this an impossible fight. On land, the British Army was okay, and America had the advantage of Britain having to ship its army across an ocean and support it across all those miles. But Britain's navy was the clear world leader and dominated the seas. There was no way the colonies could challenge the naval power. Nonetheless, they tried to build a navy that they hoped their small fleet would do just that. Which brings me to today's book recommendation. The Struggle for Sea Power, A Naval History of the American Revolution by Sam Willis. This book gives a really good overview of the ships and naval warfare of the era. It looks at the role of all the navies involved and how they interacted during the Revolutionary War. Now, if you're looking for more details on today's story, this is not a book for that. Willis mentions the raid in passing, but does not consider the details very important. Instead, this book focuses on the more consequential parts of the Revolution from a naval perspective. It follows the evolution of American naval power from capturing and converting the first ships to naval use, through the slow buildup of a small navy, and the eventual interaction and assistance from the French and Spanish navies. Cooperation with these countries eventually did create a real challenge to British domination of the seas, and ultimately contributed to the victory at Yorktown. The author, Sam Willis, has written a dozen books, almost all dealing with naval history. He also appears on history shows for National Geographic Channel and BBC. The book itself, published in 2016, is nearly 500 pages, not counting notes and index. It's a lengthy examination of a broad topic covering the whole course of the war. It is an interesting read, not what I would call academic, but covers a good deal of information presented in a manner that makes it an enjoyable read. This is a great book for anyone looking to understand the naval aspects of the Revolution. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.